From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you Binance User Protection Insurance Fund reaches a billion dollar valuation. UK InsureTech Zigo expands into Europe, targeting 20 billion fleet insurance market. And Revolut enters InsureTech, launches pet insurance. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 111. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about all the most interesting news happenings in insurance and insurtech from around the last few weeks. Joining me today is my co-host, John Bean, Client Director and Insurance Lead at 11FS. How are you doing, John? I'm doing very well, Nigel. A uh, little jaded. I've been binging on the new Jack Reacher series. Uh, but outside of that, looking forward to a great show. It is very good. I have to say, I have now completed said Jack Reacher show. And I will tell for those who've not seen it, it's definitely not Tom Cruise. And I will also say it was very good to meet up with you in person for the first time. So, uh, yes, very, very good indeed. We are also accompanied by some amazing guests. First up, we have Benji Markov, CEO at FounderShield. How are you doing today, Benji? I'm doing great. Excited to be on the show. Can you tell us a little bit more about FounderShield? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, FounderShield was conceived around 10 years ago. The whole idea and concept behind it was really twofold. One, to uh, implement technology into the antiquated and archaic uh, uh, commercial insurance industry to create a much more seamless and intuitive process and experience around purchasing and managing insurance. And number two, being hyper-specific in our focus. So we really almost exclusively focus on high growth venture back companies, emerging markets, companies really ranging from series A, series B through IPO and companies that don't fit the traditional mold of insurance underwriting. So companies like Coinbase or Robinhood or uh, companies like Bird or Lime where um, their risk exposure is very unique and nuanced um, as relates to traditional insurance underwriting. Fantastic. You're just teasing me as well now, aren't you, with Bird and Lime and e-scooters. <laughs> if you've heard the show, you know the story. We won't even go there, I promise. Uh, we're also joined by Vicky Wills, CTO at Zika. How are you doing today, Vicky? Very well, thank you, Nigel. I'm excited to be here as well. And I will say both Benji and Vicky's first time here, so we will be gentle, I promise. First up, we have Binance User Protection Insurance Fund, which is a billion-dollar valuation. This is from Cointelegraph. The world's leading crypto exchange by trading volume announced its secured asset fund for users, SAFU, reached a billion dollars in valuation. The user protection insurance fund was set up in July 2018 to protect users' interests. They committed a portion of the trading fee towards SAFU and began allocating 10% towards the fund. The crypto exchange also revealed that two wallet addresses where the funds are being held in order to ensure transparency. The two wallets contain a billion dollars worth of crypto in BUSD, BNB and BTC. Wow, where do we even start with this one? Benji, let me start with you, given that you mentioned Coinbase and others already. Where do organizations like this go to for insurance in the first place? How does how do we even start here? So we were, for, we were actually very fortunate enough. We um, at FounderShield uh, created actually the first ever insurance program in the cryptocurrency space, for, uh, specifically for Coinbase. So I had met uh, Fred and Brian when they were a team of four, I think it was in 2013. And you know the initial conversations with them were really just around traditional insurance products, given the fact that they had raised um, a significant amount of capital. From there, the conversations led to you know, the way we kind of uh, positioned it was, you know, PayPal has insurance on, you know, their users' funds, right? Banks have insurance on their users' funds, whether it's FDIC insurance or the like. And we proposed to them that there's an opportunity potentially to kind of 
create a new insurance product that's specifically focused on cyber attacks and theft of their users' funds. And so um, took around a year, but uh, we went through um, a handful of different syndicates at Lloyd's of London, uh, which was a very interesting process of uh, educating a lot of uh, gray-haired men on blockchain technology and cryptocurrency as a whole and what the opportunities were in that space from a from an insurance standpoint. And through that process, ended up creating a program that had the capacity at that point of up to a billion dollars of, uh, of insurance for their users' funds. So it was something that now that a similar type of program is used across a handful of different exchanges. And I think what's great about that is you have kind of all of the vetting of the risk exposure done by third parties, so not directly done by Coinbase. And it's backed in US dollars, not just in uh, crypto, and it's backed by a very reliable uh, source. I'm fascinated. First question, and I'm sorry to dig into this. Was it really all just gray-haired old men? Yes, <laughs> it definitely was. I, I think I was, uh, I was 25 at the time when I was when, I, when we were pitching it. So it was myself and Fred Ursum pitching it to uh, it must have been 50, 60 different syndicates at Lloyd's. And <laughs> I think the first question that they asked was, "How is this money? If you can't feel it, it's not money." Does it? You know, it's it's it was all that type of chatter that uh, if anyone has been in the crypto and blockchain space for the past handful of years and you're trying to have a conversation at the pub or conversation with your parents about why it's a great investment. It's the same kind of four or five questions that are asked over and over again. And so, yeah, it really kind of, we had to kind of go from ground zero of like actually explaining what blockchain technology actually meant and what cryptocurrency meant as it relates to, you know, US dollars or just fiat in general. And why, if anything, there's even less risk exposure there from an underwriting standpoint than insuring companies like a PayPal. I'm truly intrigued by it, not just the, the demographic, but actually Lloyd's, as we all know, on this side of the pond is, is famous for emerging risks and new things that are out there. So it, I suspect most of them are always physical or you can see them, whether it's space travel or shows or bodily limbs or whatever it might be, but we're always at the leading edge of this. So it's interesting to get your perspective on on the crypto and the exchange side. If I go into this in a little bit more detail um, around transparency, Changpeng Zhao, the CEO of Binance, urged other crypto platforms to follow on their footpath and reveal the details of the emergency insurance funds as well. He said doing so would make them more transparent and help showcase their commitment to regulators. I guess, John, one for you, is this the impetus to get regulators moving that you think that we, we now need? I mean, I'm not an expert on regulation in crypto, but I'll give my point of view. I guess my take on it is transparency is good in any business. And I think crypto has a bit of a, a murky past, um, or maybe it's just because people don't fully understand. So I think the more transparency that can be brought into this, uh, the greater trust that develops. And, you know, regulation ultimately is there for people's protection, whether it's the customer's protection, whether it's for environmental protection. Yeah, regulation is there for protection. Equally, insurance is there for protection. So I do think whether they go down the route of regulation and bring it in to protect the customers or they go down the route of, as Benji mentioned, you know, Lloyds of London type insurance or as Binance are doing, it looks like self-insurance. I think there needs to be something in place that actually gives more confidence to people that are going to invest. 
especially so it's not just the risk takers, but you've also got the risk adverse, especially if they want to grow this out to be a more commonplace platform uh, and currency. I, I think one, one interesting point about the murky pass, I mean, fiat in general as a murky pass also, I think there's like some statistic that says, you know, 95% of all U.S. currency has some traces of, of, of drugs on them, right? And like most illegal purchases are done through, you know, at least, uh, you know, before uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain were done through fiat anyway. So I, I would argue that it, it's an easy argument to make, but I don't know how relevant it is or whether it creates any sort by by kind of transitioning from fiat to crypto that um, enhances or allows for more of kind of illegal sort of activities to to happen. Yeah, and, and I don't think I was pushing the illegal. I, I think what it is is obviously that there's been hacks in the past. I think there's been exchanges where the owners have just disappeared and taken the money. You know, this has happened throughout history with any kind of money. I think obviously because of the clamor for Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies because of the wealth it's generated, it's got the spotlight on it. So I think what that's done is, you know, having regulational protection, I think is just a good thing. And to me, you know, I, I don't know a lot about it. So having that in place makes me a lot more secure and think I want to invest in this as opposed to hearing just some of the bad stories. Yeah, you, you've, you've got me thinking. It's a, it's a nice segue into almost the, the thing that hits me first when I hear crypto. And that's, you know, you talked about hacking, Benji. The lack of regulation is still felt. Uh, in the absence of clear regulations, crypto investors and traders in many countries are solely dependent on exchange and security measures to safeguard their funds. However, some of the most notable platforms have been hacked. I think I read a story that said something like 21 billion in crypto was, was stolen last year, which is just a huge number. Um, thus, the role of a user insurance fund becomes very critical. Vicky, we'd love your perspective on this in terms of why now is it just becoming mainstream and and and, and the, the norm for everyone else um, that this has to take place or is it that is something else afoot that says this has to happen now it's an interesting question um like john i won't i won't pretend to be um an expert in in crypto but i think the it's taken off so so quickly has crypto and i think sort of benji's point is really interesting around lloyd's because the the ecosystem needs to catch up with crypto. And I think at the point where you do get these sort of big prominent cases and people losing losing sort of real money that they understand, that the world understands, um, that's when the sort of push for regulation comes in. And I think, you know, the, the, the sums of money that people are talking about going through crypto at the moment are, are enormous. And there's so many wonderful advances in technology that go that go with that. And I think for it to become mainstream and for it to become part of part of everyday life for, for a larger group of people, I think it's going to hit a glass ceiling unless it can build the ecosystem around it. So I would say the push now is that it's going to it's going to be a very niche technology unless it can build that around. Am I allowed to ask, and feel free to ignore me entirely, <laughs> who on the show has actually got crypto today? I mean, I'll, I'll openly say I, I dabble but have no clue in it whatsoever. Benji's got some, he's got his hand up. John, Vicky? I explored it, but by the time I sort of blinked, I think it had gone up about 10 grand and I backed away. Well, let me, let me, explain, let me explain it slightly differently. My 12-year-old son said, Dad, can we look at NFT mining and Bitcoin? I'm like, oh my God, I need to start learning about this because my son is, my son's starting to learn about it all. So it's it really, um, I find it a really fascinating topic. I mean, in the UK, of what, what are we, 60, 65 million people? One and a half million people today hold crypto or some level of, of, of digital currency in this way. So I, th I think it's 
Vicky, to your point, it's about uh, as this becomes now more mainstream, we've got to take it more seriously. I guess the other question here is, does it take more, or did it take more casualties in the first instance to actually make it an issue and therefore we're ste stepping in to do something? I think so. Uh, I think it's like any emerging technology, right? Like, you know, cars were built without seatbelts. It takes a few accidents before technologies build in these safety nets, um, whatever type of innovation they're in, right? Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think at the point where we're talking about big losses, and if you look at the amounts of money attached to things like NFTs, right? I think, you know, the, these are real assets and, and insuring them makes absolute sense in the way you'd insure anything that's a physical asset. If you look at just um, the transition from web one to web two and all the casualties that happened there along the way, you know, with the dot-com bubble and uh, in 99, I mean, it's, you know, anytime there's any sort of level of innovation, there's going to be some backlash and there's going to be a lot of people uh, who lose money along the way. But I think what's inevitable is that there's going to continue to be an evolution of technology, regardless of, of whether we're comfortable with it or, what, or whether we want it. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, the point of the conversation here is under, recognize and understanding that this is happening. And so, you know, what are the key questions that kind of need to be answered and resolved in order for, you know, more and more non-early adopters to feel comfortable with these new technologies that are out there. I love it. And I think, you know, we've, in this conversation, it's clear that I certainly am not a, a crypto or a, an expert in any way, shape or form here, but it's clear we're all aware of it. We all see it. We've, some of us have dabbled in it. To your point, you've gone through an educated, uh, uh, an old, stale, pale and male market. But I love Vicky's point. Cars were built without seatbelts. And look at us now. We can't, we can't move without them. So I think there's safety measures in place for a reason. The last thing to say, you probably saw the news this week as well, but the accounting giant KPMG has also invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum, which I find fascinating that they're now putting that on the balance sheet. So, so I think it's almost wide scale adoption is coming and it will be here on mass for everyone going forward, which I think is, uh, interesting, exciting, but also quite scary along the way for people that just don't, like myself, truly understand it or otherwise just yet. I guess for that one, tune in to Simon and Co on uh, Blockchain Insiders. John, you're next up. Yes, next up. Exciting one now. We've got uh, InsureTech Royalty. So commercial motor insurer Zigo announced a European expansion plan by launching in the Netherlands and ramping up operations in France while aiming to identify other target territories during 2022. The company which became the UK's first InsureTech unicorn last year, will target the 20 billion plus European fleet insurance market by offering a product that rewards better, safer driving, empowering customers to save up to 20% on premiums at renewal through proactive risk management. All sounds very impressive. Um, I feel like we should come straight to you on this one, Vicky. Can you tell us a little bit more about these exciting plans? Absolutely, John. And, and you, uh, you, you flatter me by calling us InsureTech royalty. Um, quite like that. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's it's really exciting times um, over at Zigo at the moment. So as you said, we're we're a commercial um, motor insurer. Um, we've been around um, since 2016, and the products that were um, originally most famous for were um, centered around the gig economy. Um, so our flexible uh, product offering. Uh, we've moved into ride hailing since then, and subsequently fleet insurance, um, which, as you say, is a huge, huge market. And uh, we really feel that we're, we're ready to take the international plunge on those products now. And we just see huge opportunities um, to build just fundamentally better products in the space and to really give customers access to, to fantastic 
um, insurance. And uh, as you say, we've we've launched in the Netherlands. We're doubling down on on the French operation at the moment. And as the year continues, we'll be looking for for the biggest opportunities uh, for our products across Europe. Um, obviously, from my perspective, I'm coming at it from from the technology side. Just to add on that, because um, obviously technology is a huge driver in this. Is it the technology that you start with or is it the idea of the product? It'd be really interesting to get your take on this one. Well, I mean, I'm going to sort of give you probably a little bit of an unhelpful answer and say, well, it's the, the clues in the InsureTech title. It, it's, it's both, right? Um, one doesn't exist without the other um, in this world. Um, and I think it, it goes back to the points we were making earlier about the world's moving forward. Technology is pushing just completely new situations for insurance um, and technology can help the insurance industry keep up. So we'll see technology innovations that can become part of insurance products and we'll see completely new situations that need insurance products against them as well. So I would say it's a bit of both um, at the moment. Uh, what we're seeing at, at Zego, we've got our data capabilities are really core to all our products. Um, whether that's, you know, linking with the original products with our work providers um, or clicking into, you know, fleet software and telematics providers as well um, to build out the product. So it's, it's a real, real linked relationship. This is what I've, I've uh, real interest in. Telematics for me is kind of the be all and end all for auto and motor. It's been around for almost 30 years about emerging technologies, but it's only now getting to adoption. Why is that? Is that because we have gone through two years of semi not driving? We realise that having a car sitting on the driveway or the road unused is probably an unfair way to do it. And if you just bucket all into a single pool, is it more available because we're now using uh, mobile and cell phone? Or is there something different? Is it back to your point about the gig economy where you all started and you want a, a truly usage based or utility lifestyle going forward? I suppose all of the above, really, Nigel. I think there is there's definitely um, a use case for telematics in the usage-based world. And as you say, a lot of different products have emerged through through the last two years um, around usage-based. And that was one of the reasons, like during the pandemic, that we were able to offer really great products to our fleets because we could say, look, if, you, if your vans have been taken off the road due to COVID, we can charge you less. We, we know that they're not driving. We know that the risk that they're being exposed to is lower uh, and we can offer usage-based policies. Um, and the other piece goes towards, you know, getting more data that allows us to really understand that the risk of vehicles being exposed to, um, which is what telematics is all about, really. It's, it's just a, it's a method for just collecting and monitoring um, a vehicle, be that GPS, be that usage. And, and you can really get a rich picture of, of the risk that the vehicle is exposed to. And, and to your point, it has been more and more widely adopted in the last couple of years in this industry. And I think, you know, there's a few things on that. I think the technology advances, you know, if it's been around for 30 years, but it's only very recently that we can, you know, install apps on our phones that can give us like real insights into data. You know, cars have onboard diagnostics now that can that can talk home um, or can talk to another system and give us those insights. And I think as that technology becomes more mature, we're going to see telematics becoming more and more a part of, of insurance and allowing you know other products to, to spring up around this ecosystem as well, which is something that we're really excited about, especially for fleets where there's just such huge costs associated with running a fleet for fleet managers. So it's not just the insurance side of things, it's the fleet management side of things. And with all those insights coming from the from from the connected devices we have, be it the vehicles or telematics devices, we can build really interesting products on top of that. I think it's taken a long time for insurance carriers to adopt um, and to acknowledge the importance of um, these devices. Um, 
as it relates to kind of cost reduction of insurance premiums. I think for a long time, they were in an advantageous position where they could ignore it and charge, you know, significantly higher premiums. But I think as over over the past couple of years, as kind of regulations have relaxed around insurance carriers, the number of carriers, the number of outlets that are out there, new outlets that are out there that are trying to carve out niches in the risk mitigation, risk management space, it's kind of pushed the technology forward and forced a lot of the incumbent carriers to start adopting this new technology at a faster pace. No, I, I agree, Benji. Uh, and I think a, a question for you, Nigel, do we think the future is telematics and sensors or will we continue to have this kind of one sensor less, you know, one capture data at a point in time versus this kind of real-time data. Do you, or do you think we will all head towards the real-time data? I'm Vicky's going to hopefully agree with me here. I truly believe we're going to move to all real-time data, number one, because cars are just getting smarter in the same way that they had. They never had seatbelts and now they do. I think vehicles, not just cars, vehicles and mobility in general is getting smarter and more data-rich, number one. But almost back to the point that we talked about in the first story around crypto, I do think regulation and governments have a big part to play here. In the UK, for example, we pay road tax to allow us to use vehicles on the road. Well, what happens when that moves to road tolls? And I've said this for quite a while, and it goes from opt-in to opt-out. So by default, we switch on telematics for every vehicle that's sold, maybe through embedded insurance or otherwise. And what you drive and how you drive becomes the norm. I don't believe for a minute my 12-year-old son, A, may actually ever learn to drive, but even if he does learn to drive, will ever pay for insurance the same way that we do. I think if he does, we will have fundamentally failed as a sector. He already lives his life in a usage-based or utility-based world. And I think it's absolutely the right way to move or society is moving. I, I, I often joke online that life is one big subscription. So why not my insurance as well? I completely agree with you, Nigel. And what we're seeing at the moment is ownership models are changing for vehicles. And as, as we see smart vehicles come onto the roads as well, right? This is where it's going to get super interesting. Now, there's a whole can of worms that we should maybe not, not dig into. It's maybe for another time. But, you know, how is regulation going to catch up with autonomous vehicles? Because the whole risk modeling at the moment and and the assignment of, of fault in an accident is going to change dramatically. And I think for that, we, we need real-time data. We need a real rich understanding of what is going on at every point in time of a vehicle on a road. The, the other thing I'll say to that though, Vicky, I, I, and I agree with you, I, and the word I use when I talk about autonomous and all those sorts of wonderful things is it's inevitable. I could be Thanos and yeah. in Avengers and click my thumbs and whatever else. And go, it's all inevitable. It's all going to happen, which I'm super excited by. I guess the question, therefore, is at what point do we start to just accept it's inevitable and move forward, number one? And number two, they also need to come with net new products to support that. Because if we have the same old products delivered via a new mechanism, i.e. in telematics in this way, then I'm not sure that's really changed the market as much. We'd be selling my son the same product just in a different way, as opposed to a new product that's suited for the things that he wants day in, day out as he travels from home to work or university or whatever he chooses to go do. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I completely agree that there's a whole new set of products that's going to emerge. And no doubt there'll be 
you know, all sorts of learnings through that process as an industry as, as we go through it. And I, I think the only way you can design those products is to understand the space. And nobody nobody knows what that space truly looks like yet until we encounter it. And I think rather than accepting it, I think, you know, as an industry, there's, there's real scope to embrace it and, and push forward designing those products. One of the ideas that uh, um, I was talking to uh, a VC friend of mine um, that they were kind of floating by around the kind of personal auto insurance space, specifically as we see the explosion of NFTs, is the opportunity for people to, via kind of NFT technology, be purchasing personal auto insurance on a use case basis, right? Given that everything is, you know, on the blockchain, is, is all kind of in a centralized kind of contractual database, people can, can be driving for 30 minutes, buy that NFT for that 30 minutes that designates that they have that insurance. And then as soon as they're finished, sell that NFT back into the marketplace to some other user or driver who needs insurance for the next 30 minutes. Yeah, I think, I think it's fascinating. And I think to your comment, Vicky, I think the best thing to say is embrace it. I think there's a raft of new products and services coming. And I think what we've proven through telematics and data science is, you know, we can improve behaviors, we can improve pricing, we can improve risk management, and actually we can create better products and services for people it's really a call to arms to the industry, both the insurtechs and the incumbents, to actually go out there and explore with new products and services. But yeah, fascinating topic. On that one, we're going to move on. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back very soon. Thank you very much. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. Uh, Next up, Revolut enters InsureTech. Well, I think they're there already, but let's see where it goes uh, as it launches pet insurance. Uh, Revolut, for those that don't know, we've gone from InsureTech royalty to FinTech royalty. Uh, Revolut, a new business vertical and takes another step in building the financial super app that offers one place for all things money. Pet insurance is the first of many future standalone Revolut InsureTech products, complementing the company's existing insurance offerings, including travel insurance and purchase protection. The pet insurance includes protection from high and unforeseeable vet costs, as well as 24 by 7 free access to an online vet, further helping lowering the costs related to pet ownership. So first question, folks, who's got a pet? Sadly not. One hand, just me. Oh, I have three young children, so they're basically pets at this point. <laughs> yeah, I do, well, I, I'm going to tell you a story in a minute that said that might may, may make your eyes water. But let's jump into this pretending that we're pet owners. They do have big ambitions. Let's start with that. And I think anything to do with Revolut always is big and exciting and interesting, given the number of customers that they have. Um, Do you think it's uh, likely that we'll see Revolut become a household name in the insurance industry as a result of this move? Vicky, let me start with you, because Revolut is typically known by certain cohorts or it was travellers before the pandemic. And now it's international currency and so much more. But is this the entrance into the everyday household brand potentially potentially i i find it quite interesting because i from what i've seen um from the way they're positioning this 
it, it's not a separate insurance product. They're they're bundling it with the Revolut offering and saying this is the place to manage your money. Um, and there are a lot of parallels uh, between fintech and insurtech. And I think that extension, I think one very easily extends into the other and vice versa. So I think it, it rather than becoming an insurance household name, I think Revolut becoming a place to manage your money is is where they're pitching this at, which I find really, really interesting. Now, that's even more exciting, actually. That, that brings back the whole embedded finance, embedded insurance or wealth into one single place, which I think is really interesting, a really interesting spot to be. They're starting out here with cats and dogs, which is not a net new category. If you look at what people like Bought by Many or uh, Many Pets, as they're known in the, in the US, Benji, have done. Why do you think they chose pet insurance next? Is it, I'm going to ask a silly question, and maybe it's my bias here. Is it pandemic related? Is it because everyone and their mother seems to have got a dog or cat, other than us lot, obviously, over the last two years? Benji, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I, I think uh, this, the statistics show that people spend more money on their pets and dogs than they do on anything else. So it's it's clearly a irrational expenditure for pet owners. They'll spend uh, as much as they can on making sure that their pets live as long as they as possible and are as healthy as long as possible. And you know, it, pet insurance is one of those areas that is just continuing. I think it's one of the fastest growing uh, insurance products in the marketplace right now. I read an article the other day, and I think it was from Lemonade, or maybe I've read so many articles, that I'm not sure where it came from. But I think partly, yes, the pandemic has changed the way we live our lives. But I think in general, you know, pet was notoriously not very profitable, a bit, a bit like other insurance products. Pet, pet wasn't a particularly profitable insurance product. So why, why would you go there? And I think what they've proven is, or the article I read was that actually, you know, once over, if you think back how people bought things, you, you used to buy a car, then potentially your house, and then potentially a pet. You know, it was almost being that sequence. So as you're building up a customer and the lifetime value, it's got those different life stages and you help to get the customer early and then build it out. I think what we're finding nowadays with, with everybody else, partly the pandemic and just partly the way that people live their lives is you're almost starting with a pet. And then you go into the house and then finally you might get to the car or never the car. So I think, and actually pets quite, to your point, Benji, people spend a lot of money. It's, it's a lot more of a motive purchase, a bit like a house than car insurance. So you can get customers early and then you can build out that suite of products once you've got them in and that lifetime value. So I actually think it's, it's probably, a, if they thought of it this way, it's a very, very clever play in terms of getting customers early into that ecosystem and then building out that ecosystem. I think you're, you're spot on. And I, I don't quote me the number specifically, but broadly from memory, Lemonade's renter's product in North America is something like 60 to 80 bucks a year from memory. It could be way out. But pet insurance is 60 to 80 bucks a month. So actually the value you get from it is significantly more uh, on a premium side. And, and to Benji's point, we do take care of our uh, our loved furballs much more than sometimes our kids, Benji. Um, uh, my personal experience is uh, I was away in the States on, on business recently and my wife said our cat's ill and to our dismay, no cat insurance for our poor Moggy. And her hotel bill, spa hotel, for the two nights that she was in was more than my 10 days in New York. So um, yes, I think I should be buying pet insurance going forward. Next up, actually one for you, Vicky, because you mentioned this already. Uh, Chiral Seti, the product manager for pet insurance at Revolut said, the goal with our financial super app is to offer one place for all things money to all customers everywhere. So almost exactly to your point, um, the Revolut ecosystem with our retail and business accounts includes fully integrated products with superior user experience, 
for all our customers' financial needs in life. Where do they go next? What would you do? I mean, is there an opportunity for, for Zigo and other things to go in there? Or are they going to be the, the default home for managing everything to do with the house and the, the mobility and so much more? Yeah, I think what we're really going to see here is whether there's an appetite from customers to have that centrally managed location or whether, because if you, if you look at alternative products to the Revolut Pet Insurance, like do, do people need a branded name that is known for being excellent at that thing or do they want the digital convenience? And I think Revolut is sort of banking on the, you know, we've got the app, we've got the technology, we've got the partnerships, whatever it is, we've got, we have your, the, the data readily available to sign you up, you know, super quickly um, for these policies. Um, is there an appetite for that? And I think if the answer is yes, then absolutely, there's incredible scope in, in this space, managing your household bills, as you say, managing other insurance policies. You know, it, it, it's kind of an endless list at that point as to what you could feed in. And you put your trust into one single place rather than multiple different locations. Benji, is this something the equivalent of this in, in the States? I know Revolut have started to launch in different countries as well, but is it is there something equivalent from a super app? We've seen it in, in Asia with uh, Ping An and many others. What are we seeing in the US? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're seeing a lot of similar things with uh, with banks, uh, with kind of other companies in the fintech and financial services space. When you have a trusted source and that trusted source is a large company looking to create additional revenue streams, they're going to focus on kind of the low-hanging fruit and add those additional revenue streams one after the other. You know, I know Chase is doing something similar. Uh, they're working on something on the DNO insurance front for their uh, private banking clients as well. You know, most banks now are starting to develop um, and partner with insurance providers, insurance brokers on personal uh, cyber theft, cyber liability insurance policies, kind of directly through their client portal. So I think it's inevitable. Uh, I think the the good thing about this is it's you know, when you have a plethora of different options and different products across the web, it's hard to vet which product and which com uh, company that's backing that product is, is the right company to choose. But if you have a trusted source for one thing, you are a lot more confident that that, should, that, will, that trusted source will be able to deliver on a second and third product. You, you've, you've got me intrigued with two points. One is trusted source, because obviously insurance is all about trust, not just on acquisition, but also on point of claim or point of service. Uh, number one. But number two, both you and Vicky have mentioned brand to some extent. And I'm just curious from uh, startups like Zigo, like yourself, how much brand matters these days? I mean, the question at the outset was, is this going to be a household name or does it not matter? Does my 12-year-old not care whether it's a, a well-established 150-year-old insurer or he'll buy from a brand that is a lemonade or Zigo. I mean, Vicky, have you had any challenges on the on the branding side where people go up to you and go, well, what's Zigo and who are you? Um, it really depends on the product. Um, and there's different appetites across different customer sets um, from what we've seen. I think the brand really is important where, you know, we, we serve businesses, right? Even, you know, for our private hire drivers, for our Uber drivers, they're, they're running uh, their individual business and insurance for them, it's a tax. It's a cost that they have to pay to be able to to do their jobs. And what they want to know is, you know, is this reliable? Am I going to get paid quickly if there's a claim? Will I get a replacement vehicle? It's all about, you know, the, the, the claims experience is really, really important to them. So they need a brand they can trust. Um, so for us, like, you know, having, having a, a well-recognized and trusted name within that sector is is vitally important and um, if you look to fleets the bigger fleets will want to have you know will have their rated carriers 
for instance, and that'll be a requirement of theirs. And obviously at that point, the bigger players do um, tend to to come back into the, the picture. And then for other customers, um, the convenience piece cannot be underestimated um, at this point. And I think for, for products like insurance, where, you know, it, ultimately it's not a very it's not a very positive product to buy, really. Like, think about bad things that can happen and pay us money um, to, to make sure that you're protected in case these bad things happen. It is not, it's not, it's not sort of the warm and fuzzies um, at that point. So I think, you know, given it's a tax and given it's something that can be quite complex to understand, having a trusted brand put a very convenient option in front of you, I think is, is, is powerful. I completely agree with Vicky. I think just throughout time, brand matters, right? There's a reason why people buy Nike shoes versus, uh, you know, another pair of shoes that are might be made in the same exact factory. Um, I know when we started Founder Shield early on, one of the biggest, you know, pushbacks was we were new. No one knew who we were, right? They said, you know, why go to Founder Shield? We've heard of Aon, Marsh, Willis, et cetera. But building a brand is not something that you can really do overnight. It just takes time. It's the, it's the type of thing that requires a significant amount of grit and over time, that brand awareness just continues to build and build. And now for us in our business, at least, we're seeing people directly coming to us because they already recognize the brand. They know other other clients of ours that are working with us. And I think there's a significant amount of importance to brand. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it's really interesting in that, you know, Revolut is what only, is only six years old. It's got 25 to almost 30 million customers. They've done an amazing job. And it goes back to your point, Vicky, the convenience that they provide through the super app and having all one place to do things is just beyond convenient, including crypto and everything else that they, they now do as well. So going back to our very first story, it's a very interesting uh, marketplace for lots of different things. And uh, I'm intrigued as to see how they they develop over time. They've already got folks like Chubb and others in there for travel and much more. But uh, yeah, I think it's one of those ones to say, watch the space. They've captured the hearts and minds of millions of folks already. Let's see what else they add to it going forward. Uh, John, over to you for one of our more exciting stories. <laughs> um, I think I've drawn the, drawn the short straw with this one, Nigel. So this is uh, national insurance. So opposition MPs urge a rethink on April tax rise. So slightly moving away from insurance, but I promise we'll bring it back slightly at the end. So opposition MPs have accused the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of ignoring struggling families after they confirmed taxes would rise in April. Writing in the Sunday Times, Boris Johnson and Rishi insisted the 12 billion national insurance increase would go ahead despite opposition. And Liz Truss said the hike was needed due to the COVID spending and the money must be paid back. So what does that mean? I guess under the plans, employers, employees and the self-employed will all have to pay 1.25 pence more in the pound for national insurance from April 2022. Um, I think the key to this is the worst timing in, in possibly history at the moment with regards to everything else that's going on in terms of soaring energy bills, rising inflation, the high cost of food. I think it's all coming together um, and impacting businesses. So they're asking for a delay. An interesting one for the panel. Do you think this decision will be overturned? I'm going to start with you, Nigel. Blimey, politics and religion, you've, you've just gone straight into the first one. Thank you very much. Do I think it'll be overturned? I think it will be challenged. But pre-pandemic, we were probably in one of the best financial situations we could have been ever and had got better and better over years from, from recollection. At some point, we've got to pay for this. We have borrowed an exponential amount of money and it's going to have to be paid back. 
to your to your point, the timing just sucks, given uh, energy crisis and so much more that's out there. In answer to your question, will it be overturned? I suspect not. I'm going to pass it to Vicky, given that uh, Benji's in the other side of the pond, so probably not too close to this one. But uh, Vicky, what's your take? Oh, I mean, I, I have no idea whether it will be over overturned or not. I, I think it, it's, it makes sense as a situation. We, we've spent an incredible amount of money over these past two years. At some point, it needs to be paid back. I, I do think that there is real strain um, at the moment on, on a lot of people. Um, in the country and I think this is going to be a very difficult one and the, the risk is that you know we we end up paying for it in other areas and I, I, I really think there's there's a very delicate balance to be struck and the one thing I'm finding interesting in this um, we're seeing companies coming out and declaring new benefits um, for their employees saying you know we're, we're going to pay your energy bills or we're going to give you an allowance for, for for whatever it is that you're finding more expensive at the moment. And, and I think for me, at the point where private companies start to address a societal issue, I think we can all agree that something's, something's a little bit off. Um, much as I applaud the companies for doing it, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think there's going to be a balancing need needed on this. Oh, it's, it's a really interesting debate. And I think bringing it back to insurance slightly, I mean, we've recently had the FCA rule changes with regards to motor and home and the price walking. And the FCA stated that they expected insurance, motor insurance premiums to go up by circa 10% and home insurance premiums to go up by 20%. So if we compound that with all the rising costs, do we think we're heading towards people not buying insurance or being underinsured? Now, obviously, motor is regulated, but will it be the case of, you know, I don't insure my home or I just don't buy insurance? Do we think people are going to start moving towards making those decisions? I, I think it depends on what it is. If it's auto insurance and motor, obviously it's mandated, so we have to have it. So, but you might find a number of people that have different levels of cover or that are actually avoiding entirely and driving without insurance go up. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an issue and a risk. With things like life insurance and health insurance or additional health insurance in the UK, very different in the US market, of course, many instances I've seen those as luxuries or uh, nice to haves. And they're often the first things to get cut for food or energy bills or elsewhere. You know, the energy increase in prices in the UK right now is so high that people are using that to pay for heat and electricity and gas as opposed to putting feed on the table. So that's, a, that's a, an awful choice that one has to make. When it comes to medical, we're lucky in the UK that we do have the National Health Service and access to free, brilliant health care for everyone. And I think... I think People don't un understand really how lucky we are in some of these instances. So I do think it will drive these things down. And we put our spending into a, an order of priority. I always like to walk around in shorts and T-shirts. And I said to my wife the other day, she said, you've got to start putting clothes on and jumpers to stop the heating bills go so high. I'm going to put it into context. The UK penetration for insurance is about 11% for life and non-life. So it's still a tiny number, which means there's, a, there's obviously loads of opportunities to go forward. But equally, if that falls back, we're putting ourselves into quite a difficult spot. And I, and I think on our earlier discussion, when we were talking about Zigo and, you know, the gig economy and insurance, just as when you need it and pay for it as you need it. I think the gig economy is a great example where insurance solutions have, have looked and said, we need to do something different in this instance. People can't be paying you know, extortionate amounts of money for policies that are on an annual basis when they only need it for a fraction of their time. And I think 
you know, we, we got a great opportunity if people are struggling, you know, and we talked about using data to look at different insurance products. This is a great example about how do we bring products that, that tackles the underinsured or the low income? And actually, how do we give them the protection that they need? Yeah, and I was just going to add one one thing to uh, to Vicky's point before, and I, we're seeing this a lot in uh, in the U.S. as well right now, especially just with the hiring crunch. You know, the fact that it's near impossible for companies to hire new employees right now are incredibly difficult. Companies in general are really stepping up now and are providing significantly more cash towards these types of benefits for their employees to incentivize them to stay and to continue to work at that company. And so I foresee corporations in general kind of footing at least a portion of these additional expenses over over the next couple of years, given the fact that there's such a need for a a stronger workforce right now for a larger workforce. No, I agree. I will add one thing. And Vicky talked about it a little bit around the benefits that companies are giving people, whether it's paying bills or, or, or otherwise. It's interesting to see organisations, and there's two ways to break this down. One is in the gig, one's in the non-gig. But organisations offering perks to people in the old world, it would have been gym membership or something like that you could do whilst you're at work. And if you look at the last two years, anyone who's had a gym membership at work probably hasn't used it. So I think... Do we just want a fairer wage rather than fancy perks? Or do we want more money that we can then choose to do other things with, whether we choose to say, actually, what's important to me is healthcare. I remember working in India years ago where actually one of the benefits people were offering, not just the employees, but was something for the families because that's what mattered most to them. So for me, if I had a new baby like you do, John, for example, um, a perk might be actually you get to have an extra hour of sleep a day or whatever it might be. You know, you can only dream of that, I guess. But do we just give people the extra money in the first instance, reduce the number of perks that they have and let them choose what they do with the money, number one? Or number two, you look at those gig workers and sharing economy workers that are out there. There's organisations like Collective Benefits that actually help you catch up on the things that you would miss out on if you're an employee. A good example of that is pensions. So if you're a, if you're a, a freelancer or otherwise, you don't work for a corporate, you're missing out on... 20 to 30,000 pounds of pension contributions each year because you're not working for a corporate. By working with, with someone like Collective, you get the chance to catch those things up. So I think it's actually a bigger issue uh, that we should be addressing with the insurance products and the business models of the future that we can start to look at to say, how do we protect protect with these things? Yeah. And to add to that, Nigel, I think there's there's the products themselves. And obviously, they're people prioritize in these situations. And as you say, there's some there's some horrible and impossible choices uh, for some people to make. And one thing that I wouldn't overlook are payment options. Uh, because when we're talking about subscription models and on-demand insurance, it, it works out for some people that all they're doing is actually spreading the cost. And for them, that allows them to manage their, their cash flow. And that was the biggest blocker we found in the gig economy launching our original products was that people couldn't afford the full amount up front. So I think there's going to be huge scope we were joking about everything's a subscription model earlier, but I think that is really where a lot of these products are going to go in, in, in this in this world, because it allows people to, to spread the payments and to be able to afford what might be considered a premium product if they had to pay for it up front. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of scope for companies to to really push the boundaries on on the payment options. Yeah, and we've got lots of examples of obviously fintech payment options, and, and I think we've also got examples though within within InsureTech of, to your point, Nigel, about people offering benefits or people selecting different, like we've got ULife with, there's amongst others, they're actually looking to fill this space. So I do think, 
you know, there is an exciting opportunity for InsurTech FinTechs to step into this. With that, I'm going to move us on. We, we steered away from politics very nicely there, back to insurance and uh, back to Nigel for the final section. Fantastic. Thanks, John. Uh, and finally, now sit tight. You won't believe this. A Nottinghamshire man drove without insurance or license for more than 70 years. This from Sky News, a man pulled over by officers said he'd been driving without a license or insurance for more than 70 years, according to police. So we can't blame the current situation. Uh, Bull will rise, Park and Highbury Vale police said the driver claimed he had been driving without documentation since the age of 12. Well, there's another issue, I guess, with that one. Uh, the man who was driving a Mini 1 was pulled over by officers on patrol on Wednesday near a Tesco extra in Bullwell, Nottinghamshire. The force added the driver was born in 1938 and had never been stopped by police before. Oh my God, I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, so A, just wow. But B, what is so fundamentally broken that we don't check whether you've got insurance in the first place when he gets into the car? I mean, the, it's Facebook official too. I mean, the, there's a picture of a Mini 1, which is a relatively modern new car. How do we actually let drivers on the roads without uh, insurance in the first place? Or did he not even know where to start? Vicky, let's come to you first. What, where do you... What? <laughs> I mean, this is it's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? This one. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I'm speechless about this one. I, I think, I mean, ultimately, like, who who's checking at that point? Um, I, I think is, is where you look for the gaps. Like, who, who's who's motivated to to check that everybody has has insurance? He's obviously managed to, you know, fall between the cracks in numerous systems. Um, at this point, when you think about all the checks and balances that go with you know, purchasing vehicles, buying, well, presumably didn't have road tax either. Um, but there's, you know, there's this whole web <laughs> that he's managed to circumvent. Um, and I mean, it improves it's possible, which proves there's probably some work to be done, right? Well, I, first off, kudos to him. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> to first off, to, to not be pulled over or anything for 70 years. I, either he's, you know, an incredible driver or a very evasive driver, but you know, I'm as shocked as all of you about this. I, you know, I, I know when I purchased my car, I couldn't get the car until I showed them proof of insurance. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, it sounds like the rules are, are similar in, in, in the UK. Um, but I think, you know, to what we were discussing earlier, technology can solve a lot of these issues, right? Um, you know, sh um, providing these types of checks and balances to prevent this type of stuff from happening in the future along with um, a lot of the different kind of IoT devices um, that Vicky and her team are creating um, and other companies are creating in general can create additional rule sets and validations that prevent something like this from happening moving forward. So I, I doubt we're probably going to hear many stories like this, uh, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, uh, given the uh, kind of uptick in technology in vehicles. Um, but it's it's shocking nonetheless. I, I'm building your point with IoT and stuff. And maybe as, as the risk or insurance guy, I'm okay with this. I'm okay sharing with all my data if it's for good. To, to Vicky's point earlier, if the car comes with, it's a modern car, comes with connected capability at the outset, why would it not say, here's what it's doing, here's the speed, here's the driving, here's all those good things. I'm even of the, of the ilk that says, if someone gets in the car, and I started work quite a few years ago, where people would go to the pub on a Friday and have multiple pints and then drive home, which obviously is highly illegal. Why doesn't the steering wheel tell you you're over the limit or near the limit and start to change or update your uh, your your risk profile as you see fit? So your 
ability to slow down or stop or break or whatever else should be controlled by the technology that we've got? Or is that becoming too much of a nanny state, John? I think technology is there to assist and to help. And I think if you've got the ability to turn it off, maybe it's customer choice. So maybe that's built in and you can turn that feature on and off. Maybe the way to go. My view is, I think it all it all helps. I would use technology for the betterment. You know, if you look, there was an interesting article, I think I read the other day, which basically talked about um, the number of road accidents, you know, people being drunk, being hit, people dangerous driving, people speeding, and an extortionate amount of road accidents each year are due to those things. Now, all of those things can be taken away with technology and automation. And actually, you can remove hundreds of thousands of deaths every year, reduce premiums, if you just take technology. And I think if people see it for the betterment and the greater good and actually use it for those means, then I don't see why people wouldn't buy into it. Because if you're against it, you're basically saying, I support drink driving, etc. So as long as it's fair, it's transparent, and people are open and honest about what they're using the technology for and the data for, I think it's the right choices. And there you have it. I'm not sure, to Benji's point, we're going to see many more folks like this that were the before the war, born before the war and have never purchased insurance ever in their lives. And I think, as you said earlier, I'm not even sure whether there's a driving license or tax either. Uh, that's it for today's show. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you? Either websites, Twitter, LinkedIn or otherwise. Vicky, let's start with you if you don't mind. Uh, LinkedIn is the, the best place to, to find me. Search for Vicky Wills. I'm the CTO of Zika. Fantastic. Benji, what about yourself? My website, foundershield.com. That's definitely kind of the hub of everything we do. And also uh, my email address is Benji at foundershield.com. So anyone has any questions, wants you know, discuss anything, uh, that's my email. So you can uh, contact me there. I, I would say LinkedIn, but I, I rarely check LinkedIn. So <laughs> I, will, I will say LinkedIn. So you can get me at John Bean uh, on LinkedIn. Alternatively, just come to 11FS. And you can find me at MrInsuretech at Google.com. Check out that for a shiny new email address. <laughs> Thanks to all of my guests. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at Instech Insiders or FinTech Insider on TikTok. Or good old fashioned email podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks very much and goodbye.